electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, streaking stocks. The S&P comes off its worst week since June, a five-day drop that has us asking, are stocks in the midst of breaking or close to bouncing? We'll debate that and your money's next move. With our investment committee, joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, Shannon Sakosha, Steve Weiss, and Pete Najarian. He's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. It's good to see everybody on this Monday. We do begin with a look at the markets. Eh, not much conviction. I mean, it's a mixed picture, as you see. Dow's got a nice gain, better than 200 points. S&P just dips negative by a point. NASDAQ's been negative throughout much of the session thus far. It's holding on to 15,000. It's still down by some 55 points on the day. There is the Russell with a modest lift in the 10-year note yield at 131 pushing just close to 132. All right, Bryn, I toss to you to answer that question. Are we breaking or are we soon to be bouncing? How's it feel to you? Maybe we're maybe we have a little bend before we bounce. I definitely don't think we're, we're breaking. It seems like there's every day another analyst calls expecting a sell off. And I think it's really important to remind investors that in 2017, the biggest peak to trough decline we had in 2017, I think was only about three and a half percent. So, you know, 2021 could definitely be a replay of that. But what but after 2017 came 2018 and we definitely had some big sell offs. So mathematically or probabilistically, the longer we go without a 10 to 15 percent sell off, then the higher probability that it's upon us. But I really wouldn't lose too much sleep about it because I still think that you know, with the Fed being incredibly accommodative, if they're not thinking inflation is transitory and they're just worried about unemployment, I think they're going to continue to be dovish, ignore the real inflation that we see. And I think that's a really good undercurrent for stocks to continue to chug higher. That being said, I think you could have a little bit of a sell off. That would just be that would just be normal. Yeah. Pete, that's what RBC is looking for. They continue, they say, quote, to brace for a pullback before year end, but view it as a buying opportunity. I mean, are we at a breaking point off of what happened last week where we're down five straight days? It's the worst week since June. Or are we still in that momentum trend? Don't forget, we're not that far away, Pete, from, from new highs. Right. I think that's exactly right. And that's the most important part is we were just hitting high after high after high until we got to basically last week. And we started to see these days where we had something that we had seen as a theme for a long time, Scott, which was in the final hour or so. Maybe it's the hour and a half, maybe two hours. But on Friday, for sure, it was the final hour. We really just watched the markets just crater to the downside. And and it just shows me that there's some nervousness out there. There's some nervousness about where we are in terms of the market itself. It doesn't mean I'm negative on the market. I actually tend to lean a lot more positive right now. But I'm, I'm definitely keeping track of what we're seeing there. And I'll tell you what, the three V's continue to stand out. We talk about velocity all the time. We got velocity on Friday. We were up a couple hundred points. We finished down 270 points. And when we look at volatility, we actually closed just over 
nearly 21, but uh, over 20 for the first time in a while. And, you know, you, you start to see that. And then the volumes. We traded 45 million option contracts on Friday. So I think we're in a position right now, Scott, where it's very, very interesting. A lot of people are trying to push themselves around in different directions. We've had this healthy rotation. I think we continue to have a healthy rotation. And I like to see what we're seeing when we have energy working one day and then something else working the next. I think that's actually very favorable for us to move to the upside. But if we do see anything close to what we are, what, what, what we hear from like a Mike Wilson or some of the others where they're looking for a significant pullback, um, that, that's something that absolutely could be in the cards because of the fact that, as you mentioned, we're just coming off these highs. What are the catalysts right now? There's a lot of different reasons why the potential is there for us to maybe see a, a, a week or so where we see the markets actually get pushed to the downside. Yeah, but you said you're leaning more positive. Those are the words you used just a few moments ago. But you have no core moves in your portfolio to reflect that. What's up with that? Right. Well, here, here's why. No, no, it does reflect that. Why did I not make any core moves? I want to make core moves when everybody gets a little nervous and they start selling the market. That's when I want to make my core moves. I'm making a lot of option moves. You take a look at the stream of option positions that I have on right now. It's probably one of the most robust I've had in a long period of time. I, I, I continue to see opportunities there. Until Friday, we had not broached over 20 in a while, and we haven't been able to hold or sustain over 20 in the volatility index. That gives me a better opportunity opportunity to be in the option side and that way I exactly know what my risk is Scott as I go into each and every day as opposed to having long stock we see a significant pullback I will definitely be there are names out there that I certainly would be looking at that I've thought were too high that I think the opportunity would be on a sell-off to start grabbing some of those some of those names why she's been more cautious lately uh, I think it's fair to say I think mm -hmm. what are you sitting in like 20 percent cash or, or something like that so how do you see yeah. it? Because Oppenheimer says last week, at least to them, was more of a haircut, and it's not indicative of a trend reversal of any significance. Do you agree with that? Well, yeah. I mean, as I parse through all these strategist calls, what I conclude is that the top of the fence has gotten so wide it's allowing even the biggest butts to sit comfortably on top. So what they're saying is, is that, hey, the market's trade down, but the bull market's not over. So what do you do with that? Uh, basically, what you do is it with it is you figure out what sectors you want to be in, what are the enduring growth models, and you don't sell because you're afraid of a market going down. Look, corrections happen. They happen since the beginning of time, and yeah, we've gone a long time without a 10% sell-off on the top-line indices. You know, but if you take a look at what Morgan Stanley said, which I agree with, and I agree with because it's fact, we've had these rolling corrections for the last year, well, that's what we've 10% or more. Right, and now he's looking for a top correction of 10%. He's been, he's been exactly, continuously exactly. looking for that. Mike Wilson you're talking about. Right, so I'm talking about Mike Wilson, who, who's a pretty bright guy and makes you think. But where I come out is it's, you want to be invested, you want to have some cash, because what's going to happen between now and the next Fed meeting is basically nothing. There are really no positive catalysts that I see. There are only negative catalysts. I don't know. COVID and trends maybe are finally at... going in the right direction, though, right? I mean, that's what Tom Lee's pointing to. He says there's just too much pessimism, pessimism excuse me, um, in the marketplace. Right. right. But he's been saying that also for six months, that COVID cases are going in the right direction. The market's not really taking into account COVID cases. The markets come to the conclusion that it just doesn't matter. A lot of offices away from the top line that we see 
from Facebook and Google, a lot of offices are going back full. Goldman's back at 100%, and most businesses are going back. So I think you're seeing that. I don't believe the market is negatively disposed to increasing Delta variants or the MU variant, the MU variant, which is just not a factor now. So take that out of the equation. What the market's looking at, my belief, are tax increases, number one, as Costin said, but more so okay. the rate cycle. So we've got an incredibly important Fed meeting coming up, and that's what the market's on pause for with, I think, some pressure downside, not a major correction. All right. So, Shannon, Weiss makes a good point because that is what David Costin of Goldman Sachs is talking about today. Higher taxes are the key risk to stocks, he says, more so than anything else, whether it's a cut to growth forecast. Don't, don't fixate on that. It's tax reform that is actually now the, the biggest risk. So are we in kind of a wait and see period to see what happens with taxes, as the Democrats are talking about that, before we can make a meaningful move higher? If anything, we're going to continue to sort of trade where we are. We may have breaks here and there, but we're not going to get that bounce that we ask about at the top of the program until we can figure out what's going to happen with tax policy. Have we been paying enough attention to that? Because I don't feel like we have. No, I don't think we have. And I would completely agree that that is in focus. I, I, I want to point out that Washington, I think, was pretty much a tailwind for much of last year. And this summer it's been quiet because, you know, they're not there. <laughs> and so this week we've got the Senate coming back. We've got the House coming back next week. We've got a lot of those concerns that we've discussed over the last several years, the debt ceiling, what's going to happen in reconciliation, where are we going with taxes? And I think especially over the next couple of weeks, we're going to get this flurry of economic data. We're going to start to read the tea leaves of what's ha happening in Washington. And should we get a sell-off, Scott? I think the bigger question is, where would you go if we had a correction? Are you going back to the epicenter? Are you going back to these major reopening stocks with the acknowledgement that perhaps Perhaps we're entering a low growth, lower, maybe higher rate, but low rate environment for the next several years. I continue to look at it in terms of what sectors and industries would be hurt by tax reform. Have we fully priced that in? But what other surprises could come out of Washington over the next few months? And I think, again, I think we've, we're shifting from Washington being a tailwind to a headwind. Don't not, we're not, I'm not even talking about the Fed. I'm just talking about Capitol Hill and what could happen. And there's a lot to unpack with what needs to happen over the next eight weeks in well, Washington. The, the market hasn't factored in higher taxes at all. I, I, I don't think. Weiss, you don't think, think the market's factored that in at all, right? No. No, because if it has, you'd have to take down corporate earnings, which would mean more multiple expansion just to say where you, stay where you are. But I think the reason the market's not taking into account is that they don't think it'll pass. You have Manchin out there who said he's not passing tax increases, so you need his vote. You have some other moderate Democrats said, look, we don't need tax increases. So the bottom line is, no, it's not taken into account, not because it's ignoring it, but because it doesn't think it's going to pass. Well, the, to the degree that they're talking about it may not pass, but they may be able to get something through, Bryn. And that in and yeah, of and itself I think could it'll be, be. What's that, Weiss? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it would actually be a, a buy on the news if that's the case. If you have, see something between 21 percent, 26 and a half percent. And keep in mind that. You know, the, the tax on those making over $5 million, which they want to do, that doesn't affect, what, 98% of the country, 99% of the country? I don't think that's a fact. I understand, but, Brent, any change to the corporate rate affects earnings, right? And that affects right. stocks. Yeah. Right. Well, so you're seeing, if you look at 
analyst upgrades or analyst estimates to the S&P earnings, they just continue to go higher on a monthly basis. And if you look at just like down the middle of the tax increases that have been proposed, you could easily lop off 15 bucks from the S&P in 2021 and 2022, so forth and so on. And no one's doing that right right now. So if you have that come in, you know, get ready to take off once again, at least $15, you know, from the S&P earnings, that's definitely not priced in, right? Because everyone's saying that we have accommodative Fed policy, we have earnings expansion, we have earnings estimates growing, and no one's baking that in there. And so I think if that did occur, you would definitely see some type of re-rating on the market. And I also think that we know as investors, the government is a terrible allocator of capital. And so, and I think that's where, you know, people would take a seat back, take a step back and say, well, you know, where are these taxes going? And I just think it it would be a negative overhang that the market is definitely not pricing in right now. Yeah. The other big story today, Pete, that we need to talk about, even though there's no ownership specifically of Nike, is the downgrade of Nike today on rising supply chain concerns. And that's from BTIG. Uh, It's an interesting note. And they say we fear this issue is just too large to control, even for the best run athletic brand in the world. Maybe it's not a Nike specific bigger picture story for us. But if you look at inflation, if you look at supply chain issues, you listen to a 3M, for example, speaking today at a Morgan Stanley conference and talking about higher inflation, much higher than we thought. The market doesn't even seem to be reacting all that much to that that comment or the the nike issue well nike nike is nike's taking a little bit of it on the chin a very similar kind of reaction that we saw last week with apple you know as that after the uh judgment that they had last week and we had that three yeah we had a three percent move in and and apple last week we got a decent move in nike i look at nike still scott as this it's a great we, as we all know, great company. They do so many things right. Their growth is, is impressive across the rest of the world. And, and yet, when I look at it, Scott, I still have to wait. I look at this company. It's just pulling back now to where it was in July, um, which is not that far down. It's 158-ish or 159, something like that. But I think the reality is it's a, it's a stock that trades at a multiple that I don't like, especially if you want to put that up against some of the, their competitors and you look at the growth rate of Nike and you look at the growth rate of some of the competitors out there, I think that you'll find that they, the, their growth rate is, in, is significantly more than Nike. And yet you look at where the P.E. is and you go back in time. You don't have to go all that far back in time to see what the historical P.E. of Nike is, and it just starts to feel a little bit heavy. It made that monstrous move earlier in the year when it made that huge jump from the 120s up towards 150s, and it's never really looked back. I just wonder, is there an air pocket there that could be an opportunity somewhere in the future? That's one of the names that I'd be looking for when I say, if we see a pullback, what are the names that you have on your list? Nike would be one of them, because right now I view Nike as a, a, a company that not only do they have the issue that we're talking about, but we look at the P.E. level and it's just too high. There, there is a level wise of resiliency within the market itself that the, the Nike story and the 3M story um, and the tax story all all play into it. If the market was so fixated on inflation and if the market was so fixated on the supply chain concerns, and if the market was so fixated on the prospect of higher taxes, the Dow wouldn't be sitting just below 35,000. The Nasdaq wouldn't be sitting just below a new high, and the S&P wouldn't be at 4463. 
it speaks to the fact that the trend has largely been higher despite what happened last week and some of the negativity and some of the sentiment that's crept into the market. We wouldn't be where we are anywhere close if the market really cared that much about those issues. The issue is, is it about to? You know, that is the most salient point in the first 15 minutes of the show that you made right there is where's the market going next? You have con- confirmation that the market's not concerned about it by where the 10-year yield is. Shorts sure, move up from the lows, but we're still at 1.3. And when I looked before we came on air, the yield was, was uh, lower today. So I don't know. I sort of think that the Fed uh, really has no choice but to start the tapering at the next meeting. The JOLTS number says we've got 11 million jobs here, so come and get them. You shouldn't be concerned about the employment. We've got inflation. It may be transitory. It may not be. But you're seeing most commodity prices hold up. Most prices hold up. So the Fed has to go. And again, I think that could be what turns the market and pushes it lower. I don't know. Because After the it's last always job where the report, going. It's not it, where it is. Powell has made employment his deal, right? So after you get that right. nasty print on the or disappointing print uh, on the jobs number mm-hmm. for this past month, if anything, people are saying, OK, maybe that pushes the Fed off, not pushes the Fed to. It's a three month average, though. And so you had an anomaly there, which was the last month before people go back to work September last month before jobs roll, you know, the the job benefits, the extra benefits roll off, which they have. So I think that'll change the JOLTS number. JOLTS number was actually July, wasn't even August, going forward. So you can't help but believe that the economy is creating jobs. It's just a question of people coming and getting them. Let me ask you guys this. Shannon, let me ask you, I'll ask you first. The best looking part of the market to you right now is what? Still technology, Scott. Still technology. I still continue to think that we're going to come out of this. Some of the reopening trade is going to dissipate. I think that, you know, even though we're in the midst of a manufacturing rebound, uh, you know, if you're looking for business cyclicals, enterprise spend, CapEx on the on the uh, in the CEO suite, you're you're looking at technology. And I still continue to think that that's the best opportunity in the market as we go into next year, particularly if we get a little bit of uncertainty as it relates to Washington, as it relates to uh, economic growth. That that's that's the best place to be. Which is why, Bryn, we asked Jim Labenthal, Farmer Jim, Mr. All in last week, why make it difficult on yourself and try and pick cyclical stocks or reopening plays Despite what may be happening today, the trend lately has been money going into tech, money coming out of cyclicals, which is why Apple gets reiterated overweight today. J.P. Morgan, 180 bucks price target. Facebook, Amazon, Alphabet, all initiated by today. Goldman Sachs, Facebook, $455 is the price target. That's 20 and a half percent upside from here. Amazon, 4250 price target, 22 and a half percent upside from here. Alphabet, $33.50 price target, 18% upside from here. They're looking for big jumps in where the money's been going, and they obviously assume that it's going to continue to go there. Yeah, I mean, you know, to your question is like the technology sector is the most comfortable place to be, right? We know there's going to be earnings consistency. There's going to be earnings growth. They're going to continue to do do buybacks. And, you know, so I, I get that. And I have a big position in the queues. Obviously, I like tech. That's a long-term position. 
But in terms of, I think, where the most value is and where the biggest opportunity, I think it's in the materials sector with energy, lithium, copper, because I think those, are, especially energy, is incredibly unloved. And so you have to size it right. You know, it can be a very painful trade. But in terms of your question of where the opportunity is, I think that where these supply disruptions are going to last longer. And I think we have a structural shortage of energy going forward. And so that would be where I would say going forward. But definitely tech is comfortable. It feels like a warm blanket. But I think that the biggest opportunity is going to be more in that material space. All right, let's not put the cart before the horse because I want to tease that a little bit further because we're going to get into that after the break. Pete Nigerian. I mentioned no <laughs> core moves, but as usual, you are making right. some moves, and it relates to the conversation we're having now. You bought Cisco calls, mm-hmm. you own Cisco shares, yep. and you own Apple shares and calls, mm-hmm. Facebook shares and calls. Apple's your biggest position, but if you drop it a step lower, you did buy new Cisco calls. You want to tell our viewers why? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, if you take a look at Cisco, it's had an unbelievable performance this year. Uh, it's it's in, incredible, actually, and a lot of people don't even realize that. But the other side of it, Scott, is despite the fact that it's made this great move because they've continued to grow, it still trades at a ridiculous P.E. level versus much of their competition. So I still think there's plenty of upside here, and I think the way to play it is I'd like to have the beta side of things where I've got options on top of what I've got with stock. So... That's why I've got those in those particular positions. I think when you look at Apple, you look at Facebook, I think there's reason that I think that they have room to the upside. As uh, I can't remember who was talking about technology as their favorite. Shannon. But, um, Shannon was. I still look at uh, Shannon. Sorry, sorry, Shannon. Um, and, and I would agree. And I think that's one of the, the, t- the topics that, that really can start to move to the upside. Because when I look at Cisco as part of that, it's the forgotten name. We talk about Salesforce. We talk about, you know, on the semi side of it. We talk about NVIDIA. We talk about all these names. But for whatever reason, Cisco gets kicked off to the side. Cisco's continued to move to the upside. They continue to gain in market share. And they're doing an absolutely outstanding job in their execution. And yet they still trade under a 20 PE. So I think there's plenty of room to the upside. Side. I wanted to have those calls for that beta kicker to the upside if I'm right and if this is going to continue to move. Weiss, do you agree with Shannon and agree with Pete that technology is still the most comp- compelling place in the market? Yes. First, I want to make a plea to you, Scott. Don't ever do anything that may dissuade Flyer Jim from making those moves because it removes fodder from my Twitter <laughs> feed. But I do agree that technology is the place to be because of everything that was said. It's predictable growth. This is the industrial revolution here that's going to continue to move forward. They continue to innovate. They continue to expand. And you can't play technology anywhere else in the world. You used to be able to play it in China six months ago or a year ago irresponsibly, but you can't do that anymore. There's no real tech in Europe aside from a few companies, so you have to come into the U.S., well, and you will always see it happening, predictably, predictably in unpredictable cycles. I almost hate to, to, to do this. Um, it plays into your moves, but you're moving so fast within the space of Chinese technology that I don't want viewers to get confused by the, the right. speed of, of which you're making these moves, because you told our producers earlier that you were short, Pinduoduo, Alibaba, and Billy Billy again. I think all of these again. Uh, but now I understand that you covered right. maybe all of them. So rather than the specific structure of the moves, which are pretty rapid, as, as you know, mm-hmm. normally we would talk about things, why do you continue to mess around in these names? 
Well, look, I, I came into him short. I look in his hedges, and I just think it's irresponsible for any fiduciary to own these stocks. Look, the Chinese government is coming out and hitting investors in these names with a two-by-four every single week, sometimes multiple times during the week. Yet, yet they keep saying, hey, China's not going to dismantle their outside capital system. Of course they are. That's what they're doing. That's what they're telling you. Guess what? They're communists. They don't want billionaires. They don't want money going outside the country. They want those companies only raising capital. I understand on their that, but if you believe that, their co- if you believe that in your core, right. why, why are you shorting them for such a short period of time and then covering them after 15 minutes? You know what I mean? Uh, well, it's not 15 minutes. I know, but, I but get you know point. what I mean. But here's why. Because, you know what I mean. Because I, because from yes, I do. From a risk management perspective, I usually trade around my shorts often, and that's worked because they tend to come in a volley of buying. So I cover it when stocks have given me a pretty decent return. If they don't, I still cover it. So I use stops to take the emotion out of it, and then I re, then I put them out again. So the complete trading vehicle. Oh, I'd say the emotion However, is still in it. You know, if you. It, <laughs> I'd say, I'd well, say. no, if you. It, 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 There's a lot no, of emotion I'm in it. I'm trying to emphasize. I'm, try, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to. Look, I've got nothing uh, against Xi. I mean, he's made me a lot of money with his moves. Um, so I'm eternally grateful to him. Um, but look, uh, you know, shorts get volatile. And when you've got short interests aren't exceptionally high here, but they're higher. And when you've got people that say, I'm going to buy this like we've had come on the show, it's so cheap. Look at the relative valuation and you get the rally going. Just a great time to put it out. However, if you said to me, you have to make one move. Are you going to be long? You're going to be out or are you going to be short? I'm going to be short. These stocks will be delisted. Period. End of story. That was my point. That was my point. We eventually got to my point, which was I know if you had to make a move, it would be short by virtue of the conviction that you have and the story that you just told. I just didn't want our viewers to get all caught up in, you know, maybe I should be short, too, when you're covering it, you know, in a reasonably short period of time and then perhaps putting it on after another short period of time, which can get a little head spinny um, for for everybody involved. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. By the way, Farmer Jim is watching and he he's not very happy that I brought him up on a day off. (laughs) Um, He says it was a little gratuitous in his mind. But he is very comfortable holding his cyclical (laughs) stocks at this level. And he points to General Motors. He points to Boeing. He points to Cleveland Cliffs, Wynn, and Union Pacific as well. So Farmer Jim is weighing in on his cyclical plays as we're having a conversation about technology on a variety of levels. Let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back. Check out this mystery chart. It's up more than 30 percent this year. It represents a critical part of the global economy. Why it may be underinvested even at these levels. We'll debate that in our call of the day. Plus... Rin teased it a little earlier. She's going to go through some of her moves, which play into part of our story today. You can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back on the half in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, 
drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're back. We teased a mystery chart before the break. It is the CRB Raw Industrials Index representing a basket of commodities. It is up 31 percent this year. That is near all time highs. And there is a new note out today by Goldman Sachs's Jeff Curry saying that despite tighter markets and higher prices, commodities remain broadly underinvested. We've made it our call of the day. Uh, when somebody like Jeff Curry makes a big call like this, we like to discuss it on the program. Eighty dollar oil price target for Q4 2021. Upside risks for the first half of 2022. Despite tighter markets, commodities remain underinvested, he says. Oil will likely be the catalyst to get investors back into commodities and the reflation trade. So it's an interesting call. Now's the time to get into commodities, says Jeffrey Curry. Bryn, what do you think? You agree? Certain commodities for sure. You know, I, Jim Curry obviously is wonderful. I like his call on oil. I continue to believe that. You have supply imbalances in the energy market that are going to be not transitory, that are going to be persistent. I think that because the shale producers are coming offline, continuing to come offline, and OPEC is more and more going to be relevant um, to the oil economy, you're going to have, I think, a lot more volatility in the space. And I think that, as I said earlier, energy continues to be um, one of my favorite spots, but I also like things like lithium. I like copper. I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity as we are going green. And this, the, the lithium trade especially has an, some incredible structural tailwinds, you know, over the next over the next at least five to 10 years. OK, so take me through this trade then, because you did buy more of the Global X lithium and battery tech ETF. That's the LIT. I teased it earlier, but go more specific now for us if you could. Yeah, right. So a lot of people in the U.S. will buy ALB or Albemarle, which is the top holding in LIT. But you really have to look globally when you want to go into lithium. This ETF invests in the mining, refining and battery production. But let me give you a statistic that is just incredible. So the U.K. has announced, like many other countries, that by 2035, they want to have all e- all EV auto sales. So 100 percent of EV auto sales by 2035. If that is to happen just in the UK, that's going to require three quarters of the global lithium production that we have today and 50% of the global production of copper. And that's just in the UK. And so I think that whether you're saying, you know, the the lithium, the battery, the mining, refining, I like this LIT because it gives you that diversified basket globally of the full supply chain. And I just think as more and more countries adopt what the UK did, 
people don't understand there's this huge supply-demand imbalance that's not going to clear itself anytime soon. Yeah. Pete, so you bought ExxonMobil November 55 calls, right? And Marathon Petroleum calls as well. So you're playing into the Jeff Curry story. Yep. Yeah, and I have been for a while, though, Scott. I mean, this go, for me goes all the way back to November of last year. I, I've, been, I've been very overweight a lot of the energy names, but specifically on the option side. And the reason that I've done that is, you know, I know all the ups and downs and the headaches of the energy the trade, and obviously there's the social side of it and everything else. So there's a lot of reasons why, uh, you know, I was apprehensive. But at the same time, take a look at where oil has gone from 38, and here we are over 70. And you take a look at what nat gas has done of late. So when you look in that space, the energy space, I, I totally agree with Bryn. I think that there's, there's good reason to continue to be in there. It seemed like everybody wanted to jump in at 70 before. After missing the 38 to 70, we did get that pullback. And now it seems like we're starting to get that little bit of movement to the upside again. I think the copper trade is really important because, as Bryn points out, that is a major part of what goes on within the whole EV space. And that's something that's why I've got Freeport Mac calls as well, because I still think that has plenty of room to the upside. I probably should have been in the stock, but I get a, a little bit of better bang for my buck when I'm in the options. So that's why I've, I've stuck with that lately. But there's a lot of reasons, I think, in the material space, the energy space, that we should be excited. A lot of it is basically the catalyst of the EV space as well. So um, I think that there's a lot of reasons to be very, very bullish still in a lot of the various parts of the energy play. You mentioned Freeport. I, we're looking at it right now. I, I just I want to underscore the fact that, Shannon, you own it, and you bought it at $4.50, and it currently trades at $35.44. You got a quick comment? 2016 was a good time to buy Freeport. Um, I do want to say, to, to you know, what Bryn said, um, we've got to get a little bit more efficient with battery production in EVs. But, you know, I think there comes a tipping point where we are going to need more of this. And I think that we're also on the back of a manufacturing rebound. We were in a manufacturing recession globally in 2018 and 2019. We're bouncing back not just from a pandemic, but from two years where we had lower output. So, you know, I think there's some room to run here, particularly in the industrial metals. Yeah, I got to go, but I wanted to give you some props there. 450 to 3550. We'll, we'll take that any day of the week. Let's get to Dominic Chu now as a market. Flash. Hey, Dom. It's on Tronox, uh, Scott. That's what we're seeing right now. It's up 17%, roughly five and a quarter million shares worth of volume. This is on headlines coming uh, out of Reuters that uh, private equity giant Apollo Global Management has offered to acquire Tronox Holdings for about $27 a share in a cash deal. That's according to sources familiar with the matter. Those headlines did shoot the stock up roughly 20% at one point, at which point it was halted for volatility in trading. It's, it's since reopened up about 17%. This is a big maker, Scott, of titanium dioxide products. It's the stuff that makes paint pigments and, and turns basically paint white. That's the stuff that this is. And this is a big manufacturer there. So we're watching those shares up 17% right now. We'll bring you more as we know more here. I'll send things back over to you. I uh, appreciate it very much. Dom Chu, thank you very much. Up next, Pisani's got the big ETS to watch today. Plus, Pete's got his unusual activity. Let's give you a check on the S&P sectors as well. Energy. Leading the way, up 3% as a sector. Jeff Curry is bullish on that space. Some of our committee members are, too, as you heard. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... 
Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update. Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett says that his meeting today with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi was important and very good. The two talked in a resort town in Egypt. It is the first official visit by an Israeli premier since 2010. The outer bands of Tropical Storm Nicholas are bringing wind and rain to the coast of Texas, including Galveston. It's expected to generate flash flooding and a dangerous storm surge today. Officials are warning against trying to drive through waters or flooding on roads. They'd prefer that people just don't drive at all. If you don't have to be on the road uh, later on this evening, you know, please don't. Finish up what you got to do and just kind of be at home in a safe place uh, uh, later on this evening. Father, that was much better in New York City, where a million children are starting their first day of school. For the first time since the pandemic began, the city schools will be open for full-time in-person learning. And tonight on the news, a look at the Biden administration's plan for booster shots as a group of high-profile scientists state... There's no evidence to support making them available to the general public. And Britney Spears is engaged to Sam Ascari. They started dating in 2016, and it comes just days after her father asked a court to end his conservatorship over his daughter, an arrangement the singer called abusive. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate it very much. Thank you. All right, Bob Pisani now with the ETFs you need to watch today. It's ETF Edge. Hey, Bob. Hello, Scott. Good to see you. Direct indexing is attracting attention as a new form of investing. When you own an S&P 500 ETF, you have indirect ownership of the stocks in that index. You can't vote in shareholder meetings, nor can you buy or sell the underlying stocks. With direct indexing, you own the stocks in the index directly. You can customize it any way you want. You can put and own Apple, but not own Exxon, for example. And you can do tax loss harvesting, selling the losers and using the loss to reduce your tax liability. Should you consider dumping your boring indexed ETF and do direct indexing? Let's talk with Patrick O'Shaughnessy of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, Dave Nautic, Director of Research at ETF Trends. Patrick, explain how this works to me. You can essentially slice and dice the S&P 500 or any other index any way you want, correct? Yeah, Bob, you sort of started the explanation in a nice way. Imagine you had an ETF provider designing an ETF just for you. That's sort of a convenient way to think about this, sort of the unbundling of the ETF. So rather than own it indirectly, you have a brokerage account that someone trades and helps you manage according to your index rules. It could be at Schwab or at Fidelity. And it's built for your, for, for you, for your circumstances, for your preferences. That unlocks things like tax loss harvesting. It unlocks things like, for example, in my custom index, I don't own capital market stock because I have plenty of exposure to that in my career. I don't need more risk in that bucket. It unlocks things like adjusting for ESG. And what we're finding is that when we give people these tools in a custom index platform or a direct index platform, about 80% of them completely customize their strategy. So I think this is where the world is going. Technology allows this to happen. Better to own the stocks directly and unlock the benefits of doing so versus own them indirectly through an ETF. Dave, this sounds great. And to me, it sounds like investors can essentially now design their own ETFs, the Bob ETF, for example. But what problem is it actually solving? What, What are we doing with this? Well, you've mentioned a few things like ESG and tax loss harvesting can obviously be very important to some people. 
The big killer app here, though, for a lot of wealthier investors has been just straight up position management. If you work for Google, you probably have a lot of Google exposure in your career and in your portfolio. Being able to get it out of your larger position, like your index position, is a huge benefit. Most firms don't have the ability to let you short their stock, for instance, to neutralize that exposure. So executives managing large positions, that's really the killer app here. Yeah. Okay. Much more on direct indexing with Patrick and Dave on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Important thing here, we're going to also talk about some other things with Dave, Gary Gensler, and his opinions on Bitcoin ETF. We'll get Dave's take on that and why he thinks Gensler is now against the Bitcoin ETF. That's ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime, back right after this. All right, Pete, let's do it. Unusual activity. What do you see today? All right, so we're seeing some great activity in Capri Holdings. Now, this one's interesting, Scott, because when you look at what, what was really going on with the trade, you see a buyer of 5,000 of the November 57 and a half calls. Stock was trading just underneath 54 at the time. They, on top of that, were selling some upside calls. They were also selling downside puts. All of that means this is a very bullish trade. It's somebody who thinks this stock has a chance to make a pretty significant move over the next couple of months. I like this. I'll be in this for the next couple of months. On top of that one, I've got a really interesting one here as well because Glasgow uh, Smith Klein does not hit very often. It seems like we talk about every one of the other names. This name does not hit very often. It did hit on Friday. We had a buyer of 10,000 of the upside calls. Today, we're also getting a buyer of 6,500 of the September 24th expiring. So the late last week of September, September 24th expiring 41 calls. They were buying the SEP 40 calls on Friday. They're buying the SEP 41 calls that are going out one more week today. And today they were paying between 36 cents and 50 cents for those options. So fairly inexpensive, but they're also looking for a pretty significant move. We've seen more and more activity looking for that move in Glaxo. All right. Good stuff, Pete. Thank you for that. We'll be back Thanks. right after this. Shares of Tronox jumping on reports Apollo Global Management is making a bid for the miner. Our Leslie Picker just sat down for a CNBC exclusive interview with Apollo CEO Mark Rowan earlier today. They covered a host of topics. Les? Hey, Scott, that's right. We first addressed the elephant in the room. Apollo's stock price dramatically underperforming its peers. Analysts say it's because of the continued fallout over Leon Black's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Rowan, a co-founder who took the helm six months ago, said most of the firm's investors have moved beyond the noise at this point. Last year, LPs had us on pause. This year, the engine had to start up again. That engine is starting up again. Next year, we will raise our 10th flagship fund, uh, Apollo Fund 10, and we look forward to it. So is the idea kind of maybe certain LPs who have sat out are being supplanted by other LPs who are more willing to put capital to work with you all? Look, I, I never say everyone, but the vast, vast majority, um, this is in the rearview mirror. We also spoke about the markets. Rowan, whose firm oversees nearly half a trillion dollars in AUM with $50 billion to deploy, says the market is currently priced to perfection. We have historically low rates. We have a flood of liquidity. We have unbelievable levels of correlation, whether it's through open-ended mutual funds, ETFs, or otherwise. 
All of that, in some ways, is a setup for a fall. But even in this market price for perfection, there are whole sectors of the market that are just overlooked. Of course, we also spoke about the firm's recent acquisition of Yahoo. We talked about inflation. He's seeing, he says he's seeing it everywhere across his portfolio, everything from lead times, pressure on inventory, pressure on supply chains, pressure on employment. Uh, it's a very common uh, refrain that we keep hearing from a lot of CEOs in the asset management, especially alternative asset management industry. Uh, don't miss CNBC's Delivering Alpha on September 29th, bringing together the biggest names in the investment community. Register today at Delivering DeliveringAlpha.com. Also, you can check out this full 30-minute interview at DeliveringAlpha.com as well, Scott. All right. Les, we appreciate a good reminder, uh, as you just did, about our big event coming up at the end of the month that we are excited about. We'll do final trades next. All right, let's touch on a few other stocks before we do final trades. That's one of them right there, P&G, Procter & Gamble. That's uh, new high, Shannon. 147.23 is the high of the day on P&G, and it's still hanging on to a pretty good level on the day. It's up a little more than 1% right now. Yeah, it's a nice, sleepy consumer staple stock in some ways. They're growing their revenues both domestically and internationally. And importantly, as brick-and-mortar stores uh, get a bit smaller, they're having to rationalize their SKUs, which is great for a great brand portfolio like Procter Gamble. You got a final trade while I have you? Yeah, Stryker. Um, we talk about reopening all the time. We're reopening in healthcare too. Procedures are on their way up. Um, Stryker's had a really nice run since last year, but we think that there's some movement to go because, you know, all of that pent up demand for hips and knees, um, that still hasn't been unleashed yet. All right, Pete, uh, we have Oracle on the board here. It's a down ahead of the number. Are you looking to have yep. some action here? I am. As a matter of fact, I see some call activity in there, Scott. As, uh, the last couple of earnings cycles, they have gone down despite the numbers that they've delivered. I believe in Ellison. I am looking to own these calls. I don't own them just yet. We'll see in a few minutes whether I'm in or not. And I'll talk it, to you about it tomorrow. I look forward to that. It's, it's been a nice, a stealthy move, yeah. too. It's had a, a nice move this yeah. year that never gets talked about. So we'll, we'll see what happens with it me, the— It reminds me— Yep. Reminds me of Cisco is all I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I hear you. All right, we'll see what they deliver and what the action is. You uh, bring us up to date on the on the backside of that, Bryn. Yep. Editas. Um, they are one of the leading companies in the cutting edge space of gene editing, focusing on the CRISPR, which we've all heard about editing systems. Right. They're doing some really cool things with blood disorders, so it's great. Great company. Interesting what, stock. Why you got a name for me? Dix, it's down 10% from the highs, despite right. being cheaper than it was at the highest because of the increase in the All range. right, that's it for us. Thanks for watching The Exchange Starts Now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.